Please note, in this episode we will be discussing the details of historical and modern diseases which some listeners may find upsetting. (coughs) Back in the 1930s, about 60,000 people a year would have died from diphtheria. And these days, it's about three or four. This is 100 Years, 100 Objects, stories from the collections of Lancaster City Museums. I'm Rachel Roberts, the collections registrar for Lancaster City Museums, and today we'll be looking at the stories behind another object from our collections as we celebrate 100 years of our museums. Today we're looking at a small piece of card which signified bad news for both one family in particular and the whole of Lancaster in the 1930s. It's an object that tells of personal trials, but also advances in science that would go on to help save the lives of thousands across the UK. Today's object is an infectious disease card relating to a Lancastrian child in 1931. The card is quite small, about the same dimensions as a modern A5 piece of paper. It is a greyish-blue colour and is covered in pre-printed sections with standardised questions that have been filled in in black ink by a doctor. The title tells us that this is a card issued by the Borough of Lancaster Health Department. The card is for use in cases of zymotic diseases, which was a term developed in the 19th century to describe some infectious diseases. Below the title, the word diphtheria is printed in bold capital letters. On the front of the card are the details of the patient, including their name, address, place of school or work, their symptoms, when the doctor visited them, who they share their house with, and the movements of anyone from the residence. On the back are more questions about the living situation, which include everything from who nursed them and what other activities they had undertaken at the time, to where the milk for the house was bought, when the house was last wallpapered, what the drainage in the area was like, and even whether there were any books from the library in the house. This rather baffling array of questions shows an attempt to understand how the disease was spreading through the community. We spoke to Catherine Walsh, Professor of Palliative Care at Lancaster University, to find out more about infectious diseases, how they have been understood and treated in the past, and the challenges that they still face us with today. She started by telling us why she was so interested in this object, and also what diphtheria actually is. It was particularly interesting to me, partly it spoke to me because my clinical background is as a district nurse and of course there we are assessing not just people and their families but the accommodation that they live in and there was some fascinating details about the accommodation that just took me back to my district nursing time. But also this was a child with diphtheria which I've never seen as a clinician uh, thankfully But it's an airborne disease and it just spoke to some of our current experiences around uh, COVID and some of the work I've been doing around that. Diphtheria is a bacterial infection and the problem with diphtheria is that it releases toxins and as a result of those toxins you can become extremely unwell. It causes, when you have respiratory diphtheria, this leather-like pseudomembrane in the throat. And actually what was fascinating to me to discover is that's why it's called diphtheria. Diphtheria, don't get me on the pronunciation, is actually the Greek for leather. And so that's why it's called diphtheria. It's that pseudomembrane in the throat together with the release of toxins which causes the severe illness and sometimes death. 
diphtheria is actually one of the first diseases that they reckon that both the combination of microbiological advances and public health had a major impact on. So we knew a lot about diphtheria back in the 1880s. They discovered the bacterium back in the 1880s and developed an antitoxin, I think, at some time around the turn of the century. The vaccination, inoculation for diphtheria was actually developed well before this child for this card actually got diphtheria. But we also saw a decrease in the number of children and adults with diphtheria even before the vaccination programme because of better public health, better sanitation, better housing. But it was a major, major problem. Back in the 1930s, about 60,000 people a year would have died from diphtheria. And these days, it's about three or four. It just shows the impact of a really comprehensive vaccination programme and our modern approaches to healthcare and public health. By checking censuses and other public records, we know that the child referred to on this card, who is listed as being four in 1931, did survive the infection and recovered. We asked Catherine what factors made someone more or less susceptible to diphtheria and what sort of treatment and control methods they might have undergone. Of course it can affect anybody, but children seem to be particularly vulnerable to uh, getting diphtheria. And there was definitely, as there is these days, a inverse care law gradient. The poorer you were, the worse health care you had, the worse your sanitation, the more overcrowded your housing, the more likely you were to get diphtheria. As I said, in 1931, at the time of this card, they understood diphtheria. It was a really common disease. They knew about the bacteria. They knew about the toxin. They had a test for it. And again, it's really funny to uh, do some reading around this to discover the test for diphtheria is a PCR test, something that's in our language now because of COVID, but wouldn't have been previously. So they did a throat swab, which detected the presence of the bacteria. And in fact, you can see from this card that this child had a throat swab. And indeed, apparently the very same day, they had the antitoxin. We don't know from the card whether they had antibiotics. Of course, some early antibiotics had been developed by this stage. They would have done the same sorts of things that we are very used to, sadly, today. Quarantine, isolation, ventilation really good public health measures and hope that together with the antitoxin was uh, sufficient to avoid serious disease and death. Catherine told us a little bit more about this specific patient and the conditions that they were living in when they became ill. Well, the patient child lived in Lancaster in Dennis Street, which is actually in the St Anne's Ward of Lancaster. It's still there and it lies between St Leonard's Gate and the canal on the north of Lancaster. And we know that there was lots of building around that area before the turn of the century, 1850s, 1860s. And we think that was when this house was built, because on the 1846 map, the area is a field, but it is on the 1877 map. So it must have been built around that sort of time. And those houses were built as rows of terried cottages for uh, working people. And they would have been affordable to some of the lower paid people in Lancaster at that point in time. Some of the workers from the Loonside Lino factory lived in Dennis Street around the same sort of time as our patients. Um, some dock workers and our patient's father is listed as a labourer himself. We know they own the house. 
And uh, these fairly new streets probably had some better accommodation than some of the streets around. And in fact, when you look at the card itself, you can see that it's good in terms of the bath, the WC, which is still outside, um, the sink and the yard drain. But we can also see that two families appear to be sharing the house. There are two other adults and a two-year-old child with a different surname. With no way of knowing whether they're related or not or whether it was sublet. Um, in the 1930s, there were fewer people who lived in Lancaster, about 83,000, compared to about 143,000 today. But there had been a big increase in the population, and so there would have been a different concentration of the population compared to today. So people living physically closer to each other. And in fact, again, from the card, you can see, I think, one of the residents appears to have gone to Blackpool or Morecambe or something, and it's coming back again. I don't know whether that was part of their isolation procedures or whether they'd just been away for a couple of days. <coughs> and what about Lancaster more generally? What was health provision like for residents at this time across the city? Well, of course, this was between the wars. It was before the NHS started. So healthcare provision, although some of the buildings would still be the same, you know, Lancaster Royal Infirmary was, was there, would have been very differently provided and very differently paid for. So people would often have paid privately for healthcare. Some of them would have had some sort of uh, health insurance scheme. And rather than being organised nationally, as we're used to with our NHS, health was very much organised locally. And you can see that from the card. It's the Borough of Lancaster Health Department. And the local authority had a huge amount of power and control over the way that healthcare was delivered. It was very localised. And in fact, when they were first starting talking about the NHS actually being developed, you know, 10 years later in the 1940s, that was one of the models still to have a very local model. Clearly, that wasn't the decision that was made, but it was the way that healthcare was very much provided in 1931. Infectious diseases in the 1930s were major killers. You might have seen pictures of TB sanatorium with everyone outside in the fresh air. Certainly polio was still a scourge and again, another airborne disease. So people would have been living alongside infectious diseases in a way that isn't familiar to us now until the advent of COVID. So there were particular and specific infectious diseases hospitals. And in fact, in 1931, they would, I think, have already been building potentially the new infectious disease hospital that opened in 1934. So I think we're at a cusp here at Lancaster. So it was in trans transition. They opened a unit for infectious diseases next to, but separate from, the Lancaster workhouse in the late 1880s and it catered for the workhouse patients but also some people from the town. Loonside Hospital was taken over by the Lancaster Sanatorium at Marsh Point that opened in 1891 
and was flooded several times. And I think that might have been part of the reason why they decided to build a new hospital. There was a major flood in 1927. I think there were reports of people having to be rescued from the isolation hospital. The Lancaster and District Isolation Hospital was opened just after this card in 1934. It was the Beaumont Hospital and it was the last purpose-built infectious disease hospital actually in the district, mainly for people with TB, but it cared for people with other infectious diseases and conditions too. Loads of individual patient cubicles to prevent the spread of infection. And in fact, when I was doing some research around this, this really reminded me of the late 1980s when I worked as a nurse in what was the old infectious disease ward in Hove General Hospital, which was separate rooms on the top floor away from everybody else. And that was because I worked in the HIV unit, another infectious disease of the 1980s. Actually, they didn't need to be isolated. It wasn't an airborne disease, but they used that uh, facility. These days, they're really... Any isolation facilities are all just part of general hospitals. To finish the story, we discuss the parallels between the spread of infectious diseases in history and modern pandemics. Well, diphtheria, of course, is an infectious disease and an airborne infectious disease. And as I've already sort of hinted, clearly we're living through a COVID pandemic at the moment, which, as we know, is an airborne infectious disease. It's a viral disease rather than a bacterial disease. But other than that, Many of the features, not the clinical features, but the control features are exactly the same. What is the way that we can control COVID? Well, isolation, we certainly did that in the lockdowns. Ventilation, hugely important. Source control, masking when you're in crowded spaces. And of course, vaccination. So the mainstay of COVID control is exactly the same pretty much as the mainstay of diphtheria control. I think the sad thing for us here in 2022 is that we seem to have lost those lessons that our forebears would have been very familiar with in 1931. In fact, very familiar with. I've already said my my father had diphtheria as a child, clearly uh, survived um, that. But, you know, it was only one generation away from me that understood what was a scourge of infectious diseases. And we have forgotten much of that. We haven't done a great job of learning from the past. Again, when I was also reading up about some of the controls and the hospitals and the single rooms. One of the facts that I found out was that diphtheria was more common in the children of healthcare professionals and doctors because they were being exposed to it. And I imagine that would be very scary, quite frightening before the advent of mass vaccination and antibiotics and the antitoxins. And I think that reminded me of some of the work that we've been doing at Lancaster University with colleagues from across the UK to actually understand the impact of what it was like to provide healthcare at the peak of the COVID pandemic. And in that instance, we were working with people who were working in hospices, because I'm a 
palliative care uh, professionals. So that was our particular focus. And they were talking about the challenges of caring for people who were isolated, where we were wearing masks and PPE, where people couldn't see their faces, where we weren't allowing visitors or very controlled and restricted visitors. And I should imagine that might have been much the same in the diphtheria wards and the TB wards of the 1930s. And what they were talking about was a real sense of what we called moral distress. Actually, it wasn't the fact of people dying per se, although, of course, that was distressing enough. It was all this other stuff going on as well, you know, that actually caused a great deal of distress alongside, of course, anxiety about your own health and the health of your family. So there was a real parallel, I think, between uh, the diphtheria cases of the 1930s that we're seeing in this card and some of our experiences during the COVID pandemic. Thank you for listening to this episode of 100 Years, 100 Objects. Please do join us for other episodes where we will be discussing everything from diaries to denarii.